This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, today we want to talk about spring breaks. Yes, spring breaks are coming, but sometimes with that, concerns from parents regarding beach parties, drugs and alcohol, and yes, unwanted sexual advances. Sometimes it could be date rape or some other sexual advance. You know, Thomas, do you remember back when Natalie Holloway went to Aruba? She fell in with a crowd and then disappeared back in 2005. Yeah, that was one that gripped the news for a long time. I know that one's not quite as fresh on our minds, but that's exactly what happened. She was with a group, with a pack, and then got separated, and then didn't show up the next morning. And you know, this other one that is more fresh on our minds is the Brian and Gabby incident that started in Moab when they were fighting in front of the police there, and then they carried on, and she ended up dead. So these things that we're talking about, while not all the time, certainly not the majority of the time, thank goodness, but it can end up deadly. You're exactly right. And we want all our young people to have fun, but I think it's important to examine some of the dangers. We're going to have with us today a person who has given us great information in the past, Cindy Burnett, who is the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources. And SANE, by the way, is Sexual Assault Nurse Examiners, is going to help us explore what happens sometimes on spring breaks and how to be safe. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you, for you guys, for having me. You know, Cindy, I'm an old guy, and I remember back, you know, sexually explicit content back when I was young was one thing. But today, children and teenagers are exposed to so much more sexually explicit content. Do you have any thoughts about as their kids head off to college and really are out of eyesight? Well, I, I think that the conversation really, you know, really involves way before they hit that college age even. You know, I think parents make the mistake that thinking that it's only older children or even college age children that are at risk, you know, for sexual assault or sexual abuse, you know, which truthfully is not the case, you know, really a child of any age. So, you know, I always start out the conversation by telling parents that we need to start teaching our children to be safe. And, and we do that at very young ages. I mean, as toddlers, you know, we tell our kids, look both ways, you know, don't touch the stove, it's hot, put your seatbelt on, you know, those everyday things. But we forget to talk to them about body safety. Um, I know that parents think that, you know, especially, and I'm going to kind of go back with younger children to start with, you know, that maybe they're introducing a conversation about sexuality, but they're really not that we're just talking about normal body parts. So, I mean, even as early as preschool, you know, we need to start talking with our kids then about safe and unsafe touch, 
And one of the huge things that I like to tell kids whenever I come in contact with them is that, hey, we have a bathing suit rule. You know, that means that nobody should look, touch, or even take pictures, you know, of anywhere, any area a bathing suit covers. Um, and they should also be told that also they are not to touch anybody else's body parts. Um, and then we talk about maybe educating children about the correct term for body parts. You know, that's to me, that's very important because it's something if they tell somebody else, everybody's on the same page with it. You know, teach the difference between um, healthy and unhealthy secrets. This is not for children, this like toddler children, but even older children. Truthfully, in our house, we have a rule that with the kids that there was no secrets. We have surprises, like we can keep a birthday surprise or a Christmas surprise. But, you know, really when a child is asked to keep a secret, especially by an adult, that should have some warning signs. And so we just really want to teach them not to do that. You know, as we go on with older kids, you know, now we're getting into electronics, you know, and talking about the safety of electronics and, you know, who we talk to and knowing who we talk to. And I think if we start these conversations with children at an early age, we're now building a relationship to talk to our kids when they're teenagers, to talk to them when they're going off to college, which in turn gives them the power maybe to lean back on us as parents and ask for opinions and, and reach out and ask for help when they need it. You know, Cindy, spring break is around the corner. So for the parents and for the young adult children that are listening to this, what are some of the helpful tips you can give them to help prevent and deal with unwanted sexual advances? I think one of the biggest things is to be okay to have boundaries, you know, especially for many young adults and especially young women. I mean, you know, we've taught our kids that you're to be polite, you know, not, not to be rude, um, you know, taking something somebody's offered you when you really don't want it. But really, those are not good habits. <laughs> you know, they need to understand that they have the right to have their boundaries, such as if they go out and, like I said, somebody wants to buy them a drink or somebody wants to ask them to go somewhere and they don't really want to go. We need to tell them it's not rude or disrespectful to say no or turn somebody away. You know, if declining advances from someone does not work, I think the best advice is for them to remove themselves from the situation completely. Maybe they go somewhere different. Um, if they can't go, or maybe this person follows them, we need, they need to speak up. Let somebody know it's happening. You may, maybe it's a trusted person, you know, in their friend group that went or the party that they're with. It could be staff at an establishment. You know, if you're at a club, a bartender, or even a waiter or a waitress that may be at a place you're at. And if they're in a place by themselves, um, we all have this trusted cell phone that we're all connected with these days. That can also be a great tool. You know, they can pick up the phone. They can call somebody. You can share your location on all smartphones now with just a click of the button. Um, share it via text, whether it be to a parent, to a friend, whoever. Um, they can use it to take a picture of someone who is harassing them or even be used as a decoy maybe to get out of an, an uncomfortable situation, you know, pretending to answer the phone when really nobody called and, you know, making that escape that way. You know, when young people are on spring break, 
Do you suggest, especially when possible, that they party in groups or have fun in groups as opposed to one-on-one? And I, I think the buddy system, you know, which is what we've always been taught, is a great rule. And, and make that pact when y'all go out. Hey, we need to watch out for each other and watch each other's drinks. Hey, I have a keyword. I have a key signal that if I say this, you know, please come help me. Um, th- that's a very great thing for younger people to do is to always go out in groups of people and not be separated from their group. If somebody wants to say, hey, come outside with me or, hey, let's go here by ourselves for them to head back to that friend group as a backup. We're talking about our kids here. This is a very important topic. Cindy Burnett, the SANE program director at Texas Health Resources. And when we come back, Cindy is going to tell us about this new hand signal and how it was used in their parking lot at a THR facility to help save a distressed mom. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. We're back with Cindy Burnett. She's the SANE program or the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Director at Texas Health Resources. And folks, turn up your radio because you're going to want to hear what's next. You know, recently, TikTok, YouTube, social media have done a good thing. And I'm not always real friendly to social media, but they really have helped put out there the universal sign language for help. I'm in distress. Can you explain to our listeners what that sign language is and your suggestions if you're on spring break and you see a friend especially use that sign language? Sure. You know, and and the big thing is anytime that um, survivors of domestic violence and even human trafficking and, and just an individual um, try to communicate with others about their situation. This is a very, usually a very dangerous time for them. I have been in it myself. I mean, in the situation myself as a nurse, you know, that I've had maybe a survivor tell me or a victim tell me, hey, I'm scared to go home. This is happening. But yet they want to go home because they're scared of the repercussions of getting out. So when the pandemic hit, you know, domestic violence and human trafficking survivors often found themselves in the increased isolation. This was recognized. It was the Canadian Women's Foundation that developed this hand signal that someone could use during even a video call because we were we, and we're still doing a lot of FaceTiming and Zoom and things like that. Or whenever they were out in public um, without flagging their abuser that may be there with them. And the hand signal is really very simple. It's just um, putting your palm out, almost like saying stop, um, tucking that thumb inward, and then folding your four fingers over that thumb. Um, This is a move that can be done just very quickly and often without the abuser seeing it. Um, And if seen by a a bystander, they can notify individuals that are trained to approach the situation safely. And I think that's a huge point right there. You, as an outside person, may not be equipped to deal with that situation and and know how to approach that person. Because I think it has to be done very carefully. And a good example of that was is that actually recently at one of our Texas Health Hospitals, a woman and her child was entering the emergency department along with her husband, and she threw up this signal. Um, The person that saw it recognized it and 
instead of trying to intervene. They then went to hospital security, which found a way to separate the woman and child from the husband that was there and thankfully get her some help and get her to a safe place. You know, that was a great example of how an individual reacted when they saw that sign. Do you have other thoughts for our listeners on if you see this and you know someone's in distress, what should an individual do? There's there's a lot of things that people can do. And I, I do realize that people's comfort levels are at different at different levels, you know, as far as intervening with something. And a great thing that's being taught all over a lot of college campuses and schools is what we call bystander intervention. And it's made just for the, not necessarily just for the hand signal. It just happens to fit into everything. It teaches people that if you see a situation that's going on, there are many things you can do to intervene. And we call, we use what we call the three D's. One is direct action, which means stepping up in the situation and maybe telling the the person that's causing the action to stop what they're doing, that type of thing. Then the second D is distract. Um, Distract either person in the situation to intervene. Um, For example, maybe if you're out somewhere and you see it, say, hey, my cell phone is dead. Can I possibly use yours to make a quick call? And that causes a pause, you know, in the situation, which may give one party the opportunity to leave or get out of it. And the others to delegate, kind of like I talked about earlier, you can tell somebody again with the hand signal, hey, this person gave me this hand signal. Um, I've seen it on TikTok and I really feel like that they're in trouble. Reach out to that person that you feel is most trained to do so, because truthfully, it may not be safe for you um, or the person that's giving the signal for us to just jump in and try to do something. You know, Cindy, as we think about the upcoming spring break, and we certainly hope all of the young people that go on spring break have a good time, well-deserved time. We know people are really fatigued from COVID-19. But unfortunately, if some of them, and we hope it's almost none, but a very small percent, have to deal with some kind of sexual assault, this goes way beyond statistics. You know, it's unfortunate because they're going to experience potential physical harm and mental harm. So from where you sit in your position and as a sexual assault nurse examiner, why is it so important to help victims become survivors? Well, there's a fine line, I'm going to say. Even the term itself, there's really no one word that can define the realities of every person affected by whether it's physical violence or sexual violence or even childhood violence. You know, the word victim is usually referring to someone that has had a recent assault or referring to the aspects of the criminal justice system. Um, that's why sometimes whenever I'm speaking to people because I'm a nurse and I see people, you know, fresh after the assault, for me, they're victims. Um, but then the term survivor is actually the ability of people to thrive beyond that traumatic event after it's happened. Um, no matter what the wording is used, the important is to remember that a sexual assault or even a physical assault, somebody that's a victim of domestic violence, that does not define who, who a person is. Um, but in order to believe this, I think it's important to start the healing process. You know, individuals that have lived through a traumatic event um, like sexual assault, deal with enormous amounts of emotions. 
sometimes it's like the grieving process even. They're mad, they're sad, ashamed, fearful, guilty. And they may flip-flop even back and forth through all these emotions. You know, although I believe that anybody that has experienced a traumatic event, no matter what it is, really, you know, to me, counseling is just a basis that victims or survivors of sexual assault need to help be able to weed through all those emotions that they're feeling and eventually really just come to the understanding that they had nothing to do with what happened to them. Anytime somebody is assaulted of any kind, this is a decision that another person made. It had nothing to do with them. You know, and if these feelings and emotions are not dealt with, they can leave a lot of long-term consequences such as PTSD, depression, um, even into drug and alcohol addiction and, and their suicide rates. You know, we are very lucky, truthfully, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that we have um, crisis centers in pretty much every county, you know, across Dallas-Fort Worth. These crisis centers, um, they offer counseling, emergency housing, legal help, a multitude of resources that are absolutely free to people that have been victims of sexual assault or physical violence, both male and female victims. They often help them navigate the legal system by accompanying them during um, police interviews, court hearings, assisting them maybe with restraining orders. These local rape crisis centers, they even send advocates out to the medical facility, you know, when somebody comes in to help explain all the resources available, um, but also just to be there for emotional support. You know, we hope that through through the medical treatment they receive and the resources available, you know, that all victims will become what we call a survivor. And to me, what I like to say, um, but will step up and take back control of their lives, not only to be a survivor, but to be a thriver for the rest of their life. Great advice, Cindy. You know, and as I indicated, we want our young people to really enjoy their spring breaks. So with that said, Do you have any final words of advice, not only to the parents, but to the young people that are going to have their upcoming spring breaks? What are your thoughts? My thoughts are just, I just like to teach safety. You know, we talked about the buddy system. We know that, especially in the college scene, that at that age, they're getting away from parents. They just want to have fun. More times than not, they're going to be introduced um, maybe to alcohol. And it's just common that over 50% of the sexual assaults and even physical assaults that we see, either the perpetrator, the victim, or both, you know, had been partaking in alcohol. And I think we just have to teach how to be careful with it, how to, how to drink moderately. Um, we know that binge drinking is just huge in the college scene, and that's probably what's most dangerous because you become intoxicated a lot faster. We also have date rape drugs. Um, sometimes there are common drugs that are in our cabinets at home, um, but the importance of watching their drinks, you know, don't take a drink that's open from anybody, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic for that matter. Um, never leave their drink unattended. If they're having a mixed drink, make sure you make you see somebody watch it. And the main thing is just to be very careful, be, norm- be aware of your surroundings, um, stay with your party, and try to have fun as well as you can. You know, we're talking about our kids here, and we're going to bring Cindy back for a few more minutes in our next segment. Asking the question, 
How do you have a conversation with your kids about this sensitive topic? When in reality, your kids probably know more than you. And if you missed some of this and want to hear it, check it out on all the major podcast players, the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversation here with Cindy Burnett. She's the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources. If you missed some of this prior interview, it's all on our podcast in its entirety, The Human Side of Healthcare. We're talking about how to keep our kids safe during spring break. How do you recommend to parents to talk to their college-bound teens in the context of the reality that the kids probably know more than the parents about the conversation. What do you say, what do you say to parents? Well, you know, and I think that's the, the goal of starting so early is I am that true believer that I am not my child's friend. I am my child's parent. But when we start that conversation, they feel like that they can come to us and ask us questions and, and tell us things that is very difficult for for most people, you know, and to me, that's the biggest deal is just being there for that child, knowing that, hey, if you're in trouble, call me. There's not going to be any questions asked at that moment. (laughs) I'm not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be things asked later. But, you know, when that child really maybe feels like they're in trouble to me to make that lifeline that they know that they can call it a parent and they're going to be there in a heartbeat, no matter what the issue is. I think that that is just golden to help keep our young people safe. You know, speaking of that, where in the timeline of youth, and I'm just talking about average here, I know there are exceptions, but from your perspective, you've seen it all, where does this begin, either their age or their grade, when they start to get exposed to this kind of information outside the home? Well, you know, in our day and age, sadly, it's immediately, (laughs) you know, I mean, how many four and five year olds do you see um, when you're out to dinner watching a cell phone, whether it's a YouTube video or, again, TikTok or, or something else? And with all our gaming systems we have, you know, our kids have the ability to talk to anybody they want to across not just the United States, but across the world. So, you know, to me, that those conversations start when your kids are so small and that they those conversations grow with your child, you know, whether the, it's the content in them or just the words. But if you can grow your conversation with your child, you're going to stay on top of your things. If you wait till that child to hit puberty to have that little birds and the bees talk, you are already way behind the game. Um, I hear new things every day. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I have to tell um, some of the people that I serve, you know, okay, I'm sorry, I'm old. You're going to have to explain that to me. And maybe we do the same thing to kids. Sometimes I think like the news and maybe um, newsfeed that shows up on your social media. Those are great teaching moments for both the parent and a child. Because if the parent hadn't heard about it, I can almost guarantee the child has. Maybe they can educate each other. Cindy, I know from the times that you've been here with us before, you come from good stock. You are cut from probably a lot of the same cloth that Steve and I and most of our listeners are probably cut from. But let's flip this around. You have a teenage daughter 
and she's going to go to college, and she is going to be promiscuous. How do you be promiscuous safely? I, I think that's a, that's a very hard conversation, but reality is is that um, all of our children, male and female, are going to grow up and they're going to have sex at some point in their life. And that is one of those hard conversations that we have about being safe, whether it's from sexually transmitted diseases or where you're meeting people or how you meet them. But it's that conversation that's needed. And maybe it's also that conversation, not just about sexuality, but about morals and where you come from. What is, it's hard for me to say that something is right or it's wrong. Each person's going to have to grow up with their own background, I guess, to say. Um, and again, it just goes back to being safe, knowing who you are, knowing where you met them, who is around, and just trying to keep your body healthy as well. We've been listening to Cindy Burnett. She's a frequent guest here on the Human Side of Healthcare, the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources, the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Such a very important topic for parents. Now, Steve, we're going to pivot to another relevant topic that has been in the news lately as well. Absolutely. We're going to be dealing with maternal mortality. And for our listeners that may not know what maternal mortality is, generally speaking, it's after birth, one year forward, what happens to the mother? And unfortunately, during the pandemic, the CDC just released these statistics in 2020, we had more mothers die than we had in previous years. Now, if we don't know if the cause of that were people put off medical care or medical treatment, but this is a very serious problem in the United States. And unfortunately, Texas, Thomas, is above the national average. You know, I would imagine, Steve, that not only being a critical life and death situation for some folks, that it also, of course, it leaves a child without a mom. And also, I'm sure that it puts a significant cost on the healthcare system. Oh, it's a tremendous cost. And unfortunately, it, it's a cost on the lives of the individuals. And the other thing, Thomas, it tends to be more focused on people of color. Black women in Texas have a much higher maternal mortality rate than their peers. Let's unpack this with Marjorie Quint Buzid, another person who has been on our show before, welcoming her back. She's the Senior Vice President of Women and Infants Specialty Health at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Marjorie, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here and talk about an important, serious but important topic. Thanks. You know, many of our listeners may not understand this serious problem, maternal mortality. Can you explain what it is? To sum it up, the CDC defines maternal mortality as the death of a mother due to a pregnancy-related complication or conditions that worsen during a pregnancy. Um, essentially, you would ask yourself the question, would mom have died had she not been pregnant? Traditionally, you would look at a pregnancy complication as anything that occurred during a pregnant, any death that occurred during a pregnancy in up to 42 days. But recent information has uh, extended that period, and the CDC is in agreement with that, that we look at any death that occurred from the time she was pregnant up to about one year after delivery of the baby. 
thanks for framing that up. So we're we're really looking at a year after the delivery of the baby. And many of our listeners may not understand some of the complications, but I'm assuming postpartum depression, heart attack, stroke, are those are the kind of things that impact maternal mortality? Yeah, and um, certain other conditions, uh, any other mental health disorders. We're looking at the data in Texas of why women die, and we're finding uh, some contributing factors. Uh, women who have uh, behavioral health disorders, substance use disorders, uh, the conditions you mentioned, we're seeing deaths related to violence. Uh, violence, we include suicide and homicide. When you look at the statistics within Texas and even broader throughout the United States, does this tend to impact African-American women more than others? Interesting that you asked that, and the answer is yes. Um, some of the data that came out in um, earlier in 2017, there was some concern that the data may be uh, misrepresented. So the United States, as well as Texas, have looked and re-looked at their data. The numbers have been adjusted down some. Despite that, it's still undeniable that African-American women are two and a half times more likely to die as a result of a pregnancy-related complication in the United States as as well as in Texas. Not only are they more likely to die, they're two times more likely um, to have an adverse health outcome as a relate of the pregnancy. So one for every one death, uh, there's about 100 black women that would still experience a serious health outcome just for being pregnant. You know, when we look at maternal mortality in the United States and in Texas, are we seeing any improvement or is it on the increase? We are seeing, uh, in the United States, we are seeing improvement. And uh, even in Texas, there are some areas we're seeing an improvement. However, um, it's still on a slight increase for African-American women, which tells us that we still have some work to do in our country and in our state. And, you know, to drill down a little bit here in North Texas, I know you do a community health needs assessment. When you have done that in North Texas and specifically in Dallas County, what have you found related to maternal mortality? So because uh, maternal mortality is measured in 100,000 live births, the state generally does not produce data at the um, county level as far as maternal mortality. But what we know about the conditions that causes maternal mortality such as pre-existing heart, cardiovascular disease, pre-existing hypertension, pre-existing diabetes, um, some of the social determinants of health, you know, inadequate housing, inadequate transportation, lower, um, low in- socioeconomic income standards. All of those are what we know leads to the higher incidences of maternal mortality. Our community health needs assessment demonstrated that we still we have pockets of concerns in in North Texas and um, in some of our zip codes that Parkland services. So while we cannot say that we know the exact number of maternal mortality because it's a rate, we do know that we have the um, social context within which 
um, we should expect that we would have problems with maternal mortality among our African-American moms in North Texas. We're talking with Marjorie Quint Buzid from Parkland Health and Hospital System about this very important topic of maternal mortality, how it affects you and me next on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Marjorie Quint Buzid from Parkland Health and Hospital System about a hot topic in the state of Texas with a staggering statistic. Women who die after childbirth. Steve? Are there any recommendations that have come out of when you looked at the community health needs assessment that you think we could enact to help in Dallas County? Absolutely. Um, we, When we looked at the community health needs assessment, we found that there is significant social determinants of health needs, such as um, food insecurity, uh, housing need, transportation needs. So we, as Parkland, determined to address health equity um, head on by trying to address some of these social determinants of health. Um, Parkland has implemented since that time, we've implemented several programs to address some of those social needs to help bolster the social and economic condition under which our women are experiencing their pregnancy and then having to parent up to that first year. So we've increased the numbers of community health workers that we have. Uh, We implemented a program to extend maternal care for about a year Um, provide a year after delivery. And the purpose of that program is to provide comprehensive medical follow-up as well as addressing, identifying, addressing social needs, um, providing linkages to the community, helping the moms um, understand, making an assessment for behavioral health and substance use, presence or absence of it, and then providing referrals, following up with them to make sure that they make those referrals. Um, this is all we've also extended there. We're providing the medical services at cost to the organization so that that's not a barrier, their inability to afford these medical follow-up care after they deliver. You know, I know that you have put in programs to help initiate and address maternal mortality. Is it too early to tell or have you made progress and are you measuring the results? Well, I will tell you, um, we still need, um, again, just because of the, you know, needing to get to about 100,000 deliveries, we need about three years to measure in the terms of from a research standpoint of progress. But I will tell you what we've know, what we've actually found. We've enrolled about uh, over 1,200 women in this program. And of the 1,200 women, 70% of them immediately after delivery identified a need. About 54% of them has had a healthcare need and it was needing a primary or specialty healthcare follow-up. Approximately 21% of these women had behavioral health or substance abuse need. Uh, 14% of them identified transportation needs and about 11% of them identified dental and eye care need. What we're able to do is not only just identify the need, 
but help the woman navigate systems of care to be able to get those needs met, get appointments made, help with transportation. I will tell you behavioral health and substance use help after you've delivered is just not very available in uh, North Texas. And that has been something that we've had to help many of these moms try to um, find out what is locally available and also within our system. We've challenged our system and they've actually, you know, we're doing better coordination so that even though they're pregnant, um, if a mom needs, has a substance use order, how do we get her into a system of care to make sure that is addressed? We've also um, done more for effort now that we're identifying the need with intimate partner violence of making sure that we help stay in touch with mom and help her to follow up, get get to a place where she has a safe living situation and the behavioral health therapy that's required. You know, those are some excellent programs. And I have to ask you this, has COVID-19 pandemic impacted these programs tremendously or have you worked through it? Well, we've worked through it. We've had to be extremely innovative and adept at um, changing course and finding and being very creative. I will tell you the COVID-19 pandemic, what we have seen in the program is a significant increase in the number of women voicing concerns around social isolation. We've seen increases in anxiety and depression among our moms um, because they're either um, isolated in the house or they're not able to get out in the community. They're not as some of the get into some of the resources such as the week office has become relatively difficult. Some of them rely on um, food bank and diaper service, diaper assistance, and they're not able to get those. Uh, their transportation, if they were relying on others for transportation, those have not been as readily available because of social isolation or people just coming down with COVID or just a, a fear of mom getting COVID and bringing that home to her family. So it's been a psychological as well as a physical toll. What it's caused us to do as a system is to be real creative about how to still engage these women. So we do a lot more um, telephone contact. We've done some work on um, educating them about how to care for themselves or their baby to keep themselves, you know, obviously COVID-free or if it should they become, uh, get COVID, how do they safely care for their family members? But it's caused us to be really, really creative in figuring out how to get services to our moms. You know, that really is important, though. You touched on the telephonic or the virtual uh, that you're using to help reach them, especially during the pandemic. And that is that is so good that you're able to do that. So, Marjorie, I'm going to step back and just ask you a question where you have to look in your crystal ball. What do you foresee as we enter 2022 is how we address maternal mortality in North Texas and specifically Dallas County? So I think we, um, North Texas and specifically Dallas County, I I believe that we, we now, I think there's understanding of the issue and understanding of the problem. Where I believe that we just probably still need to shore up our our efforts is to engage the women, the community of Black women in North Texas, um, get them involved in program planning, 
help to uh, involve them in being a part of the solution. Oftentimes in healthcare, we come up with fixes and we try to pre- present that to a community, and we often struggle with getting um, full buy-in or acceptance from the community that we're attempting to help. And that's because we haven't engaged them. So if we start looking at um, maternal mortality from a health equity lens, then that means that we have to be intentional about how it, about engaging that individuals we're attempting to serve. The other thing is there's a lot around um, implicit bias in, in a healthcare setting, and more and more you're seeing studies about that. So one of the things that we would like to do, and I think there's there's room for that, is being intentional about providing uh, training to healthcare workers in all of North Dallas about implicit bias and how it impacts the needs of um, the women that were that are most likely or most at risk to die just because they got pregnant. You know, your points on health equity are very well taken. So Marjorie, what are your final thoughts on this very important topic? Um, Just one other thing I'd like to um, say, you know, all of the programs that we're doing here at Parkland or elsewhere within North Texas, it, it does cost. There's a cost to that. And so one of the the reasons why women do not access care is their inability to pay for it. Not every healthcare system has the, you know, is is able to provide some of the services that we've done that we are we know is making a difference. And so just asking the listeners and everyone else to continue to help us to advocate for um, access to health insurance coverage for women, not just through their pregnancy, but all the way up until one year after delivery. This has been Marjorie Quint Buzid from Parkland Health and Hospital System. Steve, such an important topic. I'm glad that we covered this today. We covered some very important topics today. And Thomas, wait a minute. Are those sunglasses? Is that sunscreen? Are you packing for spring break? (laughs) You never know where I'm going to be. You know that. I'm traveling around. But yes, I'm actually going to be recreating and possibly even doing a little snow skiing during spring break. Fingers crossed. We'll see. We'll take Cindy Burnett's advice. And for our listeners, join us next Sunday for the human side of healthcare.